All right, what is up, guys? Thank you for listening to the Nomad Strength Show. Uh, we got a really fun podcast for you today because I'm talking to James Nash of Six Ranch Outfitters and host of the Six Ranch Podcast. We are in October, in the middle of October, so we're deep into hunting season already. And this time of year, obviously, I'd like to talk to a lot of the hunting and outdoors guys that I've come across in the last year. And James is one of my favorite uh, accounts that I've come across in the last handful of months. He puts out incredibly awesome educational, uh, whether educational content on hunting outdoors. He does a ton of butchering and cooking and uh, all kinds of other stuff. But what I really enjoy about the way that he presents this stuff is it's very like right to the point and it's all actionable stuff. And he, I originally found him when he uh, posted a video of him eating some dry aged meat or some salt cured meat. I think that was the salt cure was the first one I had listened or watched. Ate some salt cured meat that he had left uh, hanging and curing for like months in a garage. So technically still raw. And that process was fascinating to me. So I just started, I needed to find out what, what this guy was about and, and get him on the show. And I'm really glad I did because it was honestly one of the more fun conversations I've had on the podcast in a long time. We got to talk about a ton of stuff. Uh, we talked about conservation and a project that he and his family embarked on that took 18 years worth of government red tape and it originally happened when he was eight years old to essentially move a river on their property. Uh, we talked a lot about conservation. We talked a lot about uh, curing and, and preserving meats and food. Uh, talked a lot about hunting. We, it was, we were all over the place, but it was all really fun information. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode with James Nash of Six Ranch Outfitters. Go check out the Six Ranch podcast. It's awesome. If you guys don't mind, go into whatever platform you're on right now. If you haven't done it already, subscribe to the show. Leave a, a five-star review. If you're on Spotify, you can uh, leave a five-star. If you're on Apple, you can actually write a review. All of those things are incredibly helpful for the podcast to grow. We've been growing actually pretty well here the last few months, and I want to keep that momentum going to help this show reach more people, and uh, that's pretty much responsible for a lot of the stuff that I do. So uh, thank you guys again. We also have the YouTube channel that's up and going now. We'll have the full videos of the full video podcast up, which if you're on YouTube, you're watching me say this right now, uh, but we we'll also have clips throughout the week, shorter clips of highlights of the show each week. So go subscribe to the Nomad Strength YouTube and uh, let's get into it. Here is my conversation with James Nash. live. Welcome to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show. I'm really excited with my guest today, James Nash from Six Ranch Outfitters. Uh, one of my honestly favorite hunting slash outdoor Instagram accounts I've been following for the last handful of months. So I'm, I'm glad we got the chance to connect and chat for a little bit today, man. Thanks for making time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I want to say the first thing I saw of yours was probably some of the salt curing stuff. Uh, I believe uh, a buddy of mine, Andy, uh, flip-flop guy, mm. Andy Muckle, uh, shared something. I'm like, ooh, I like that. And I started just going down the rabbit hole of this whole journey you've been doing with salt curing and stuff. And I noticed that in your in your page and, and the stuff that you share on Instagram anyways, you approach a lot of educational stuff in a way that I 
don't see a lot of as it relates to the outdoors community, which is cool. So I want to kind of explore a bunch of these different things with you today. But before we get into that, why don't you just like give a quick little, you know, you're, you're an outfitter and a guide, like what else in the background kind of brought you to this place right here? Yeah, gotcha. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me on. First of all, it's, it's always a pleasure to to talk to somebody who cares about meat and education because <laughs> yeah. those are two things that I'm pretty passionate about. Uh, yeah, my name's James Nash. I'm a retired uh, United States Marine Corps captain. I'm a fifth generation rancher. So my family has been here on the sixth ranch for, um, for now six generations. Um, I'm the fifth. Uh, we started here in 1884, which is pretty old as far as uh, Oregon history goes. Yeah. Uh, we're one of the oldest continually run businesses in the state of Oregon, which I think is cool. Um, yeah, I went to college in uh, Dillon, Montana. Uh, Western. And I got, yeah, Western, yep. How's Carol? Uh, oh, nice, very nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I got a degree in, in literature and writing from a university that uh, misspelled the name of its mascot, so that's pretty neat. <laughs> And then I went into the Marines after that. I've been guiding uh, since I was 14 years old. Uh, oh, no way. So that's, uh, gosh, carry the three. That's, uh, that's a long freaking time. I'm yeah, 37 man. now. Um, so I've guided fly fishing. I've guided uh, whitewater fairly extensively. Mm-hmm. I've guided archery, rifle, shotgun. Uh, I've competed in, uh, in lots of pistol matches, lots of shotgun matches, uh, some sniper rifle stuff. And yeah, my, my kind of main deal right now is the, is the six ranch podcast mm-hmm. working on the six ranch, um, running six ranch outfitters. And, uh, and then within the, the spectrum of social media, I try really hard to, um, sort of provide some no nonsense education for people in, in ways that they can improve, you know, their, their experience before, Mm. during, and after a hunt. And I, I do that with the articles that I write as well. So, um, yeah, I, I do have a lot going on, I guess Mm -hmm. all the time. Um, tax season is a nightmare because that's when I have to remember (laughs) on paper how many jobs I have. It's like, Oh, I have nine (laughs) different businesses I have to file for. <laughs> if I ever get audited, it's gonna be like good luck. Like, it's like you have forty dollars missing from income in this one business. You're like, I, yeah. there's no way I was yeah. ever gonna keep track of that. Yeah, pack a lunch, <laughs> sir. You're gonna be here for a while. Oh, that's great. With the uh, with the ranch and growing up on the ranch, and you know, and it's something that has so much history, right? I mean, you're talking hundred, almost hundred fifty years. Like yeah. that's that's wild. So was there was there sort of this expectation? Like, I don't know. I don't think you mentioned if you have like siblings or whatever. Was there, there this expectation that you or a sibling would eventually just kind of move in and do the thing? Or was it something you actually enjoyed being a part of? And that's why you are still a part of it. You know, it's complicated. I, I don't particularly like cows. Um, I'm not yeah. a horse guy. Although, you know, I've, I've, I've cowboyed for, you know, portions of my life and I've guided off horses uh, I, I rodeoed in high school and college. You'd think that I would be a horse guy. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, you'd think I'd be a cow guy. I'm not. I love the land a lot. If, if I were to say that I don't feel the pressure 
of those previous four generations. Yeah. It, you know, I, I feel like I'm surrounded by, by ghosts, by, mm. by the people who, who worked so hard and endured ad- adversity that, that I honestly can't imagine to get here, to create this, to mm-hmm. hold on to it. And I've experienced versions of that adversity throughout my own life here on the ranch. Um, but I would really be slapping those generations in the face if I decided to go off and do something else. Now, for me and my little sister, that was always an option. And, and we both explored other things. Like, you know, I went and lived in Norway for a year in high school. Hmm. She went and lived in Argentina. Um, I went and studied uh, literature in Montana. I went to the Marines. I went to war. She went to culinary school. She went and buckarooed all over the country. We, we went and, and kind of figured out a little bit more about who we were and developed that through through some really serious trials and both of us ended up back here so mm. now she lives like 600 yards away from me and uh, which is just outside of you know her effective rifle range which is a pretty good deal <laughs> and uh, she's got two little boys uh that are growing up and uh yeah her, she's got a two and a half year old that called me uh at 7:30 this morning, and and he was scouting ducks. Um, he he saw some nice. ducks come into the pond, and that's awesome. I asked him, you know, what he wanted to do with them, and he said he wanted to to spin around and stomp them with his foot. I was like, you know, it, it can come to that sometimes. It can come to that. I'm going to be honest with you, uh, but man, it's 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 pretty cool. It, and my mom, God bless her. Um, the ranch comes from from her family. She's the yeah. one that's held on to this. Uh, you know, she's worked extremely hard to, to create this opportunity for me and my little sister to take over. And now Adele, my little sister, is running all of the the beef side of the operation. Um, oh, wow. She's running all the livestock side. I run like the, the conservation side of things and mm-hmm. do all of our wildlife and ecosystem management. We work together on that. Um, I gave my mom uh the fly fishing business that i created several years ago so that she can kind of stop cowboying and and ease into that as as a retirement plan (laughs) um so now she's guiding the fly fishing on the place and it it, it's pretty cool man it's a really special place special opportunity it's beautiful here uh and we're able to make make some really uh really healthy food for people and do so in a way that is is sustainable and healthy for the landscape as well and that's becoming increasingly interesting to more and more people it's like how do you how do you find sustainability in agriculture um you know there's people that are talking about us having only like 50 or 60 more cycles of of uh, crop growth with our topsoil now that's a gargantuan problem. Yeah. Uh, so we really need to look at the places like the Six Ranch that make it year after year after year and through mm-hmm. the generations for systems of resilience and reliability. With the with the part of the things that you are in charge of in the in the whole operation, you mentioned like a lot of the wildlife, the ecosystem stuff. Was that something that you sort of created as you came back into the fold, or was that something that existed prior also? Because that seems like Really, I mean, and you're talking about sort of this regenerative approach, right? That kind of seems right in the wheelhouse of that. And so where was that in the fold? Did you create that or was that there before? That's a great question, Ross. Um, I'm going to take probably more credit than I deserve here. Yeah. Uh, one of the most charismatic uh, conservation projects that we've done on the Sixth Ranch is restoring the Wallawa River. So the mm. Wallawa River runs through the ranch, 
from the middle of my place to the mouth of the Columbia uh, River where it hits, hits the Pacific Ocean is 600 river miles. Um, we have uh, several nat anatomist fish species that historically came through here, uh, including uh, silver salmon, coho salmon, chinook salmon, um, steelhead. When the heavy equipment came home from World War II, they straightened this river all the way through the valley. And they did it so that they could put in railroad tracks and a highway and, and really improve logistics. And they also got a higher velocity of water for irrigation. Uh, so they, they definitely did it for the right reasons for them at the time. Mm -hmm. What they effectively did was destroy the fish habitat, right? Because they turned a natural river that moved around every year, created new channels, um, reinvigorated itself with, with topsoil and different things. Uh, and they, they made it a racetrack. They made it a bobsled course and, you know, it ruined the fish habitat. So, uh, when I was eight years old, I was down there fishing and I found one of these old river channels and in my little eight-year-old brain, I was like, man, if the water was right here, I could catch more fish guaranteed <laughs> than over here where it's straight and fast. And, um, so I went to my parents and I was like, Hey, uh, can we put the water? Like, what are these things? First of all, and can mm -hmm. we put the water back in there? And they're like, yeah, sure. Draw it up. So I, you know, crayoned it out. We went down to the state office and I was presented my my plan for how we we're gonna uh, move the river and the, you know they told us to pound sand but <laughs> uh if you are a you know 150 year old ranch you don't give up that easy so right. we kept after it uh 18 years later we got the permit uh so almost somebody's entire government career they could have dedicated to just not issuing us a permit to be able oh to restore gosh. the river so we got the permit we went and surveyed the river. We took models of um, unaltered rivers from the area. We engineered a new river channel. We dug that channel dry and then moved the water into it. We brought out a bunch of kids and tribes and um, biologists and you know other spreadsheet people. And uh, we electroshocked the, uh, the old channel and cataloged all the fish that were in there, moved them into the new river channel. And we created uh, over a mile of new river channel through this wow. project. And we had Chinook salmon spawning in here, Ross, within two weeks of finishing that. No so way. So it wasn't, yeah, dude, it was, it was so fast. And they'd never been here before in my life. Like never before had I seen a Chinook salmon on the Six Ranch. And as soon as we had the habitat, they were there. You know, they'd made that 1,200 mile swim. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, 16 dam crossings, sea lions and cormorants and gill nets and commercial fishermen and sport fishermen and river otters and every other thing. They'd made it and they were just looking for a place to spawn and suddenly they had it. So now we've got Chinook salmon back. We've got steelhead back. Um, the, the silver salmon run is starting to return. Uh, we're working on a dam project so that we can get a sockeye re return maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then we also, as a product of that, got ospreys. We got bald eagles that came back. We had more golden eagles that showed up. We raised the water table like three feet through the entire valley. Um, and I know this is boring to a lot of people, but man, it was cool. That's like awesome, it really, man. really worked. And and then uh, other ranchers around started doing the same thing. And uh, now we have miles and miles of this river that are restored through cattle ranches. And there's cattle grazing on the banks, man. And it is working. It's so cool. That is amazing. And to think, I mean, and you talk about the perseverance of 
18 years of rejection in this process to, or, or maybe not even rejection, but just probably like the normal government thing of just kicking it down the road with no real answer or something, you know, like, Oh, I got to pass it off to this guy. Like we got to go through all this stuff and all the red tape. But the fact that you can actually look at it now and kind of shove it in their face and be like, look how smart this was. And it works repeatedly, not just like in this one instance, like you said, there's other ranches and stuff that are doing this type of thing. So that seems encouraging from the standpoint of now there's data that shows this can be done elsewhere, not just in like this one little location where you found when you were eight years old. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and you know, in conjunction with the cattle still being there. Yeah. So we, we did this in two phases. In, in phase one, uh, in order to get some of the funding for it, we're not, we're not rich people, all right? We can't afford to do this type of project without um, lots of support from lots of, lots of people. So... Section one, in order to get some of that funding, uh, a lot of it came from the Bonneville Power Association. So mm. they're the ones that run the dams and they have to pay abatement dollars, which is basically like blood money. Like, hey, you yeah. know, we're making a bunch of money off of electricity. We know that we're jacking up the fishery. So we're going to give you guys some shut up money over here. Now, it's very much in their interest to not take any blame for uh, for fish runs going down. Right. Um, that's not a good look. So. Anything else they can blame is great. Cattle, that's low-hanging fruit. Like, we're going to blame cows. Cows are stomping on the fish. Cows are killing the fish. All right. So that's what they did. So they said, okay, you guys can't have cattle in here for a decade, uh, and we're going to help you with weed management. Like, oof, that sucks. Uh, that's some of our best pasture. But um, conservation is important. We genuinely believe in that. So here we go. So we uh, – we, we went ahead and made that deal. When we did the second phase of the project, now we're going to do a section lower down. They're like, no cattle for a decade. And we're like, screw you guys. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is going to work. We're going to put cattle in here. And they're like, well, then we're not going to do it. I'm like, fine. Then we're not going to do it. And they're like, really? Like, just like that, you're going to say no to money? I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. So now we have a control, right? We've got a place that doesn't have cattle, a place that does. And... It worked. It yeah. worked beautifully. So that was another really important thing. It's like you don't have to sacrifice your ability to to produce beef to to use those cattle to be uh, to be effective tools of managing the grass uh, in order to do this conservation. They're not separate things. They can actually work together. And we had way fewer weed problems on the project that had cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wildlife preferred that section um, as well, just because it was getting reinvigorated through that grazing. So how do you, how scalable, I guess, is, is maybe the word I'm thinking, would you think that something like this is, because the pushback a lot of times against the beef production thing is it's like, well, there's no way that you can do this with the demand for beef that is that we have right now. Like it just won't work. And and it's the same thing on the other end with the agriculture side of growing crops. Like you can't do this to scale what we need to feed the world essentially. Like cuz that's always what I what I hear. Is that something that you, like is this something that you think can be scaled to that degree given enough time with the proper methods of doing it? You know, our best farmland in the country is getting covered up with soy and corn beans uh, where it used to be prairie. Mm-hmm. And if that went back to prairie, not only would it be tremendous for wildlife, but we could put cattle in that niche that bison used to fill. Mm. And, you know, the, 
this corn and, corn and beans can make a, a really fatty steak, like, you know, just dripping and catching on fire kind of <laughs> steak. And I like those steaks from time to time. Don't get me wrong. I yeah. do. Uh, however, uh, that's not very healthy for that animal. So it's not, it's definitely not healthy for the landscape. Um, I think that if we took a close look at what type of grass um, and, and native grass production mm-hmm. we could get out of that corn and soybean country that is just the best farmland in the world throughout our Midwest. And we've got such talented farmers back there, such hardworking individuals, like they could do it. They could sure yeah. do it. And then, you know, treat cattle in the way that, that bison used to be. And, you know, we had millions ahead of bison. We could put millions ahead of cattle doing the same thing. I don't know how many people that would feed. Sure. Uh, you know, that that's complicated math, and I'd, I'd be lying if I said anything at all. But I would like to see some of that, like, Monsanto country converted back into more natural landscapes and mm-hmm. more natural vegetation and then graze it in a way that, that's more sustainable in the long run. It wouldn't seem, I mean, even though if it doesn't, like you say, you can't. We can't do the math to know if it's going to be a, like a one-to-one replacement of the current production. But I doubt there's going to be any negatives from that process. Do you know? Like, does, or or would there be in that regard? Yeah, possibly. That that landscape is pretty weakened right now. Uh, so think about like think about a person who's maybe had every vaccination uh, they they could possibly have, and they've lived in an environment where they're not being subjected to anything that could ever make them sick yeah. and then suddenly you throw them out out into like a, a subway in new york city or something yeah. like they're going to be really sick by the end of the week that's sort of the way we've treated this land so it's it's only producing a couple different types of crops in rotation so that we can fix some of that nitrogen back into the soil it's been heavily fertilized uh, massive amounts of pesticides go into it. And then the crop itself that's going into the ground is Roundup ready. Um, so it's been modified so that it can't die from this chemical that kills literally everything else. So I think that if you tried to make that adjustment and, and come back, uh, you would have some really tough years. Yeah. And I've, I've seen some local guys who went ahead and bit the bullet and tried to uh, get back to organic after... Um, like being heavy on, on, on sprays, chemicals, uh, fertilizers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Those transition years are ugly. You yeah. grow a lot of weeds. You grow a lot of weeds in those transition years. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because you see a couple of bigger companies that are still small in, in relation to like the giant yeah. beef companies. Like I'm thinking of like White Oak Pastures and then like Force of Nature has – uh, the other one that they have, I can't remember the name of that one down in, down in Texas also, but they're kind of doing it like on this like same size of scale where it's like, yeah, it works here at this size, but it's like, what would it take to make, like to replace something giant if it even is possible? And the thing, like you said, it's going to take a, just a ton of time, which there's going to be some real rough things that people probably won't want to sit through the rough parts to get to where it actually is beneficial on this side, especially if we're talking about like now we're taking something away essentially from somebody, you know, whether it's a method of doing something or literal food in some cases, if it's like, you're gonna, we're going to suffer through some years of production to get to this thing. But I don't think people would want to stick around for a lot of that, you know? Well, and also imagine what the hunting would be like if, uh, in like, this is kind of fun to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine like in Iowa, 
Nebraska, Missouri, that's just rangeland now, just rangeland. And I know corn can create like these big jacked up, you know, Bomar deer that, you know, (laughs) are all freaking goofy looking and like they they can't even walk right anymore because all their heads up, (laughs) all they've eaten is Monsanto corn in their life. And somebody's going to be like, hashtag organic. Shut up, bro. But, um, like, imagine the diversity of wildlife that we would have out there in those places if if it was restored to, mm. to something that was natural and grazed and sure. burned and, and kind of got back into that. Man, you'd mm. have elk in the Midwest again. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have lots of game bird populations and, and, you know, just the wildness that would come back would be really sexy. And this is all, like, pie-in-the-sky stuff. <laughs> Um, and uh, you know, a lot of those outfits, they're, they're 40 acres or they're, they're 160 acres. Sure. You know, they're, they're not necessarily these, these big spreads that you see out West, but, uh, yeah, I I feel like there's a way, but there's gotta be a need first. Yeah. Right now we have millions of head, fewer cattle in the U S like our national beef inventory is lower than it's been since like 1950 or something like it's really really low Mm -hmm. and the 50s was a low point too because that's when we kind of quit ramping up production for world war ii a lot of ranches went went bankrupt after world war ii because you know they weren't able to sell beef to troops anymore uh so our beef inventory is really really low however our our beef production like the number of pounds of beef we produce is as high as it's ever been so the animals themselves have gotten a lot bigger, so much so that some of these kill facilities uh, now can only accept certain animals because these these bigger beefs that are coming in will actually drag on the on the kill house floor oh my because goodness. they didn't build the ceilings tall enough for the cattle that exist today. Isn't that's, that wild? That's crazy. <laughs> like what a expensive like dumb math mistake to make, you know, like, or, or, but not even mistake, but like, you don't who know until one coming? gets in there. Yeah. Who's, who you, you saw it coming? Like, Oh yeah. No cattle idea. are going to be three feet longer in 40 <laughs> yeah. years. That's crazy. You know, like I would have been like, uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm going to go ahead and build it for like the size yeah. of cows that we have now. And like, right. I don't know, giving an extra foot for the fun of it. Um, it's like the yeah, first well, one comes in and it's like, oh, that's weird. He's a huge one. And then it's like, ah, I won't keep happening though. Right. And then they just keep happening. Dude. And a lot of these are Holsteins, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, the dairy industry is this monster that's like off to the side of beef. And like, sometimes they're like, yeah, no, we're totally beef, but you know, we're also dairy. Like they're cutthroat, dude. There is straight up dairy, like mafias and dairy hitmen. Like they're ugly. Like <laughs> dairy is as ugly as the actual kill facility side of it, which you know, some of them are like South American, straight up like South American mafia, like crazy, crazy, crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a dirty underworld to all this. But what you've got to realize with dairy is that only half those calves that are born are female. So what happens to all the steers, right? Well, a Holstein steer turns into a friggin' moose. And if you go to the store and you see a steak that's really long and kind of like moon shaped, mm. that is from a dairy cow. Really, a hundred percent. That Crazy. is not the sh- that is not the shape from from commercial beef, uh, from anything you know that's black Angus wow. related. And yeah, it's not a bad it's not a bad steak. I'm not sure. I'm not crap crapping on dairy steaks or anything. 
but that's what it is. And so the more you see those longer stakes in the store, and I'm talking about like ribeyes and New Yorks and stuff. Yeah. Um, the that means there's more of these small kill facilities and these mom and pop places that are going out of business because they can't take those cattle. Wow, that's wild, man. That stuff yeah. that I mean the that stuff like you wouldn't even think to think about. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of like. <laughs> I'm still. I didn't know. I went like, to. I'm still thinking about like just the like the first shipment of cows that nobody can process because they're too big. I'm like that is what? It's crazy. So I, I, I'm a curious guy. Like yeah. I, I'm curious in all kinds of stuff, and that's why uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoy the most about uh, hosting a podcast is I get to talk to people who are experts at stuff that I'm not, mm-hmm. and I get very interested in things. So this winter, uh, the, the shop that, um, that processes a lot of the game that my clients kill, um, the, the owner of that shop, and this is Heinz meat company in La Grande, Oregon, outstanding meat shop. Uh, the owner is like the VP or the president of this, uh, Northwest meat processors association. And he's like, Hey, are you going to come to the, to the butcher convention this year i was like there's a butcher convention <laughs> like absolutely when is it uh right. so i drove over to boise idaho and you know stayed for a couple of days and wandered around this meat convention it was hilarious it was so funny and there's like you'll see like rooms full of people getting absolutely heated about whether briskets stall or not because they're like doing all this stuff on like a commercial level and there's, there's like PhD meat scientists that are, you know, university professors <laughs> and people are just getting steamy about whether brisket stall oh. or not. And, uh, dude, I learned so much. These people are so passionate about just, and, and it's not the, it's not the production side. They don't right. care about that. Right. The consumption side. Nope. Don't really care about that either. But that space in the middle, the yeah. cutting the meat and then making those products, they love it. And they're That's so into cool, it. cool, man. It was fun. That's cool. I, it, that's where that's where I learned that because I went and toured a big kill facility. That's where I learned that um, they had to make it taller to fit modern beef. Is that a yearly thing that they do around? Yeah, dude. Because I'm in I'm in Nampa, so like I'm right here. You're right where, there. Yeah, I'm right here. Okay. I was like, dude, that sounds so, rad. I'll go to that next time. Yeah, it, it was at the it was at the Riverside Hotel, you know, oh, at yeah. uh, Garden City. You know what I'm talking <laughs> exactly. about? Exactly. Right, right down the road from Everly Stock. So, yep. uh, no, it was. Uh, you should go, man. You that's should awesome. go. It was really fun. That is great. And that's actually not a bad uh, transition into one of the other things I wanted to get into, which is how I found your page. I mentioned like a lot of the salt curing stuff that you were that you were trying out. And uh, like this butchering conversation kind of segued nicely, but uh, that was something that super interested me was the really sort of this how things used to just be done all the time that people don't even realize you can do now. Like, like, what do you mean you can just like put it in salt and not touch it again for six months or what, however long it is. But that's like, that's how you preserve stuff. Refrigerators are pretty new. Like that's, that wasn't something that's been around for very long. So like, what was it? I mean, was it kind of that just wanting to explore the old stuff that drove you to want to try these things out? Man, that that's just kind of the way I'd always done things. And, uh, I didn't realize before I saw the response from those videos, uh, that not everybody knew that. Like, 
you know, I thought it was just like normal enough. I thought this is just another mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, I might as well like take a video of myself tying my shoes, like check out this technique, <laughs> you know? Uh, but uh, in our old farmhouse, like the original farmhouse that was built in 1884, there's a room on the back porch that's built with, with really thick walls. And it was the cold room. And it stays mm. about the same temperature all year long. So it's cool in the summer. It doesn't freeze in the winter. Uh, obviously, there's, there's no heat or, or air conditioning or anything like that. And I'd hung game in there before. And one time, I, I hung a quarter in there and I forgot about it easy enough thing to do. I forgot about it for quite a while. Uh, I'd be lying if I, if I told you a specific time, but it was months and months and months. And I was walking past this old farmhouse one day and I was like, Oh shoot, I've got, I've got meat hanging in there. I wonder how gnarly that is. And I went in there and, uh, it had a big thick pellicle on it, mm-hmm. but you know, looked fine. Cut it open with a knife. There's this bright cherry red meat on the inside, and I hadn't cured that or anything. Yeah. Um, and I just cut a piece off and I ate it, and I was like, "Well, oh, that tastes pretty awesome, actually." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, the salt curing thing is really interesting. Uh, you know, there's there's some safety aspects of it as well, especially if you don't know quite where your meat's coming from or how it's been handled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really encourage people to to read up on the safety aspect of things. And if you need to be using nitrites, nitrates, citric acid, stuff like that to, mm. to lower the pH of meat so that um, it becomes acidic to the point where the bacteria that live in it, like listeria mm. and botulism, you know, they don't live in it, but they can be easily introduced. Uh, those, those things are really harmful for people. Like you don't want to mess with that. Mm-hmm. But bacteria are single-celled organisms. So when you lower the pH of meat, they spend all of their energy fighting against that environment, and they exhaust themselves and die. That's the way it works. So read, read up on this stuff and figure it out. But, man, when, uh, when Lewis and Clark made their expedition, when they got to Three Forks, Montana, that's where the, the Jefferson, the Madison, and the Gallatin River come together. It's mm-hmm. just outside of uh, the absolute hellhole of Bozeman, Montana. That's <laughs> um, uh, like the epicenter of dudes hunting with llamas. It, I don't understand it, but uh, it's, it's, it's right outside of Bozeman. Yeah. Uh, three forks. They had to decide then uh, which fork of the river they were going to go up because they were mm-hmm. tasked with finding the headwaters of Missouri. This is a... This is the the fork in the road, all right? What are you going to do? Like, think about what was going through those guys' mind. They probably were not thinking this thing is going to braid out at some point or that three rivers are going to come together at exactly the same intersection. Right. So they're like, man, like they hired us to find the top of this river, but now it's split into three. This is crazy. So what they decided to do was to go up two of them, to split their party into two. Um I'm sure if they had enough people and had enough leadership, they would have split into three, but they didn't. They, they went up to two forks. Um, when they left there, they buried some bacon in the bank of the river. All right. And, you know, they, they go up the forks of the river. They end up re- reconvening, um, go over the Rocky Mountains, drop through Lemhi Pass. Um, you know, they've met up with Sacagawea's people at this point. Uh, they try and go down the Salmon River of No Return. They almost starve to death. 
They come back around. They go over Lolo Pass. They almost starve to death in the clear water. Um, they finally get, you know, out of the trees, meet up with some more natives. Uh, they all almost die of dysentery because their diet goes from like starvation and meat and eating their own moccasins to eating camas roots. And like now they're back on the veggies and they almost crap themselves to death. They go to the Pacific. Uh, they make it. They spend a really tough winter there uh, just weather-wise, but they killed a ton of elk. They come all the way back, right? They come all the way back. They get back to Three Forks, and they eat their freaking bacon <laughs> that they left in the riverbank, and it was still fine, all right? It was still okay. That's that awesome. is so amazing. That is. Right? So why would we ever think about losing our ability to do something like that? Yeah. Losing our ability to preserve food. And one of the one of the big debates right now or, or things that we're really thinking about is energy, right? What, what are we going to yeah. do? Like, we're not really in an energy crisis, but we can see that there's one coming. And one of the big problems is sometimes we can create surplus energy right now, but we can't store it. Mm. Okay. The original energy is the calorie. It's what we can eat. It's food. We need to know how to store food. It is as important, if not more important, than being able to store energy. Because at the end of the day, like it's much more important for us to eat than it is to be able to turn on the lights. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there's a few things that we can do. We can use sugar. We can use smoke. We can use uh, nitrates and nitrites, which uh, is basically, you know, saltpeter, which is one of the primary ingredients in gunpowder. Um, we can use salt. Uh Anything that makes it a hostile environment for the harmful bacteria to grow in, mm -hmm. uh, we can we can then actually make meat shelf stable so that it can exist at any temperature and exist like that for years and still be able to provide us with uh, with nutrients, with calories, and uh, and keep us alive. It's a cool thing. When you're so to give like some basic. You know, and it'll depend, I'm sure, on what type of meat it is, you know, what cut it is, if it's a whole quarter versus, you know, just a cut that you've taken off or something like that. If somebody was going to start and say, like, I'm just, I want to figure this out, what's the most accessible way to do it? Where it's like the, maybe like the lowest risk version of it where they can feel good about what happens after. Okay. Uh, so, you know, butchering, there's so many levels to it and there's, there's lots of, there's lots of ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And the more you do it, the more you'll be convinced that your way is the right way. <laughs> but there's actually lots of ways. Uh, when you're breaking down a hindquarter, an easy cut to figure out how to take off that animal is going to be the, the sirloin tip. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, basically like the, the thigh, like the, you know, if, if yeah. a deer had a thigh, that would be the right. sirloin tip. And there's some great YouTube videos and stuff out there to learn how to cut out a sirloin tip. You can do it in a couple minutes with any knife. And, you know, most of it is going to be done with your hands. It's really easy to cut off. Some people call it a football roast. Um, but it is, in fact, the sirloin tip. And it lies just underneath the tri-tip. Cut out that sirloin tip, and you've got like a football-sized and shaped piece of meat that is a whole muscle. So we don't really have to worry about bacteria penetrating down into that. Mm. Um, 
So you've got that whole muscle and you can figure out how to cure that. Um, so one of the ways to do it uh, and the way that I like to do it is to completely cover it in salt and kosher salt. And I'll do that for 10 days. Okay. At the end of the 10 days. And you mean cover it like you're, I mean, you're burying it in cover salt. It. Not, not just like you're seasoning it with no. a lot of salt. Like it's no. submerged in the I'm not doing some bed. sprinkle it off your elbow nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I'm covering it in salt. And, you know, what I'm doing is I'm drawing moisture out of that meat. And it will, it will literally drip. Uh, so I like to hang it in, in a good game bag. I use our golly game bags. There's lots mm-hmm. of good game bags out there, but I, I cover it in that salt. I put it in a game bag and I hang it outside, uh, for 10 days and it, it drips, drips, drips. I weigh it before I put it in the salt. I should mention that. Um, I don't care what metric you weigh it in. I weigh it in ounces, mm-hmm. uh, but I've got my, my initial weight. So I write that down because I forget stuff. So I write down the date and the weight and cover it in salt, hang it in the back. 10 days later, pull it out and I take a scrub brush and I scrub all the salt off of it. Um, or as much of it as I can. Mm-hmm. And I weigh it again just for the fun of it. And I throw it back in the bag and I hang it up. Now this is just outside my shop underneath a, like it's a breezeway it's a lean-to right so it's got yeah. air around it 360 degrees whatever the weather does the weather does i live in northeast oregon on the edge of the mountains and between now and april i'll have days that are 73 degrees and 25 below zero <laughs> yeah. so it, it's it's all over the map and uh that's kind of a, a decent time frame so i can leave it out there all winter long in that game bag Birds aren't going to mess with it. There's no bugs. Even if there were bugs, they can't get in that bag. It's right. still breathable. Even when it freezes hard, we're still getting sublimation uh, instead of evaporation. So that's when we have water go from a solid to a gas, mm-hmm. right? That's why ice cubes shrink in your freezer. Okay, so we've got that going on. We're still pumping moisture out of it. When I've lost about 60% of my original weight, then it's ready to go. And I'm going to pull it down and I'm going to slice it as thin as I can. And you can use a meat slicer, which is the best thing to do because that'll cut it really thin. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can use a good, sharp, thin, rigid knife and you can cut it really thin. Um, there will be a rind, like a pellicle is what it's called on the outside. Mm-hmm. Cut that off. And man, some some good uh, aged cheddar or some like aged balsamic vinegar um, or even just by itself, like it's so good and it's really mild and mellow and um whenever people eat it they're they're a little bit hesitant and they'll eat it and they'll they'll think about it for a second because it's a new flavor and then they smile every <laughs> single person that i've ever given it to has this same experience <laughs> and uh i think it's because it's something that's really old and it, it's part of who we are as a species and this is this is how homo mm-hmm. sapiens grew up was was eating old meat when you're in that step process, when you go to put it back in the bag the second time after you've scraped everything off, you're not putting more salt in it with it that second time. It's just you've stripped everything off. You're putting it back yep. in the bag from there, right? Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. And then when you go to store it or or keep it after, it doesn't really matter because by then you can – I mean it can be on a shelf in a cupboard, couldn't it? Or does it need to be refrigerated after that? So once you slice it, it dries out like before your eyes if, you, if you're not careful. Yeah. So what I do is I, I run it through the slicer and then I put it into whatever size 
packages I think I'm going to want, you know, mm-hmm. 12 slices or whatever, then I vacuum seal it and throw it in the freezer. And then I'm not losing any additional moisture gotcha. from that. Um, but as far as shelf stability, that's where you would probably want to start mixing in like that prog powder so that uh, you you had some additional resistance to any type sure. of harmful bacteria. Do you have a favorite, like a favorite meat that you've done with this method that you think tastes the best? If it's, if it's deer, if it's something else, like what would you, what would you say yeah. is your favorite? You know, I think venison prosciutto is fantastic. Uh, I did it with a goose last year and I, I think I, I remember did, seeing that video. Yeah. And I yeah. made goose sushi because it was, um, the, my, my little neighbor girl, she's freaking adorable. She helped us set up the decoys and then she went to school and, um, and then I, I had this goose, uh, this goose breast that I'd left the skin on the breast, but plucked it. And I, I'd made a salt box and had it, had it buried in the salt. It realistically needed to go for quite a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but Madeline, uh, said, Hey, I didn't get to eat any of that goose that I helped you kill. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You're right. Why don't you come over for dinner? So, um, I made a bunch of sushi rice and then I cut that stuff really fine and it was, it was still pretty wet, but it, it had that, that nice fat cap on it that I kind of scored and then seared off with a torch. Um, and anyways, I treated that as if it were yellowfin tuna and, uh, gave it to, uh, to all the adults and all the kids that were around and everybody absolutely destroyed it. Like they loved the goose <laughs> yeah. sushi. Um, and gooshy is kind of fun to say. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I think that that was probably my favorite thing that I've done so far. That that was a lot of fun, and it was just sushi is such a a, a beautiful food too. Um, you can be really creative with with how you do it. A lot of mm-hmm. different colors get expressed in it, um, and it's just a fun like community food to eat. There's a, the other the other one that I've heard um, from a from a preservation standpoint is doing the canned meat method oh yeah and uh the one that i've heard more than just about any other in terms of how good it is is canned bear meat yeah you know people are 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 mostly full of shit when they say that they like bear (laughs) um and it's kind of like it's kind of like the dudes that uh that say they really really like doll sheep i just really like doll sheep Like, bro, you spent $30,000 on that hunt. Like, You're going to like it. You couldn't tell. You can't tell at that point. It's like, oh, I spent yeah. thirty grand on this, you know, rib that my guy just hucked into a fire made out of tundra. Like, no, that's yeah. probably not that great. If you ate that in a restaurant, you might be upset. But I get it. Like, that's how human mm-hmm. psychology works. I think it's like that with bear to an extent. Now, mm-hmm. I've had bear that is good. Like, I'll, I'll give it the, the rating of good. Uh, I've never had bear that's excellent. Um, a good in any to, kind of preparation. No, no. Okay. Like on the spectrum of food, like sure, because we have to recognize, like this is the 21st century. Like I can live in Eastern Oregon and I know what sushi is. Like that's yeah. freaking wild. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've experienced food from from all over the all over the country and lots of places in the world. I've got a, a broad perspective of what food can be. And yeah. I'm not going to list a bear in any preparation at like the top rungs of what food can be. It, sure. It's just not there. But 
it's exciting to hunt bears. It's good for the environment, good for the ecosystem. I love hunting bears. I love watching bears. They're one of my mm-hmm. favorite animals out there. Uh, you know, bears are incredible. And there's lots of ways that you can you can do stuff with that meat that, that makes it good. Um, it makes a good summer sausage. It... Uh, it can make uh, a few other sausages that are pretty good. Bear tends to respond pretty well to sugar, so okay. you can make you can make some some breakfast sausages uh, that are that are pretty good. Just like loose meat, like Jimmy yeah. Dean's kind of breakfast sausages. You're going to want to mix some pork in with that, and then uh, yeah, as far as canned bear, I think canned meat is really good, uh, and it's it's so easy to do. You cut it into little cubes. You throw it in a can, you throw a little bit of salt in there. Uh, you know, if you're a, a masochist and you like spicy stuff, you can throw some jalapenos and stuff in there too, whatever. Ooh. Ugh. Uh, that, that, plant, <laughs> that plant evolved a toxin to warn animals not to eat it, and people just do it for sport now. It doesn't make Literal sense. sport. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyways, so if you're into that kind of thing, throw it in there, man. It's, it's not that hard. And then you slap it into your, your pressure cooker and follow the instructions, pull it out. And you've got, you know, meat that's ready to go with the drop of a hat. And it is really good. I really like canned venison. I really like canned elk. I like canned smoked salmon, canned bear, all great things to do. All great things to do. So yeah, canning is a lot of fun. It's, it's not just for grandmas anymore. Um, I know I know more like, like pipe hitting veterans that are into canning than I do grandmas. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. It's such a fun time to be alive, man. That's great, because <laughs> uh, I'm thinking too. Like in our in our home, our uh, we have like a little cottage style home that was built in 1920, right? So downstairs is like a real short ceiling basement, but there's a canning room downstairs like that yeah. was built in because it was built in 1920 so of course yeah. every house was built with a canning room and then uh we've got a shed in the back that is uninsulated mm-hmm. like it's just a structure with outside walls and studs cool so yeah. i mean that's like where my my all my kettlebells and all my training stuff is but i'm like having this conversation with you, i'm like okay well i know two rafters that i can hang stuff from like that'll be right there and then we've yeah. got like now this more stuff that we can maybe try out uh this year when and have stuff to go downstairs so it's like i'm always wanting to find like what's just like a one thing that i can practice to yeah. see if see if i like it first you know Dude, but if start, it's gonna start help, with canning start yeah. with canning um for sure start with canning and get like order your canner as soon as we stop talking because they can <laughs> yeah. take a long time to get um there's there's one called all american that that's an american made canner Get okay. the biggest one that you can afford because these batches take a long time. It can be a couple hours yeah. um, from, from heating to the actual time that you spend at your cooking temperature and then letting it cool down afterwards. So the bigger the canner you get, the better oftentimes. Now, you don't want to put a huge one on like a glass top stove, right? You sure. can crack it. It's a lot of weight. But uh, yeah, get that and, and get started with different canning recipes. Um, write down what you did and put it on the label because there's like put it on the top of the jar because there's a good chance you're not going to eat that for a couple years, right? And <laughs> right. you want to remember how you did it if it's really good. <laughs> right. <All> right. <laughs> That's uh, good. But man, it, it's so fun. It's so fun to do. And uh, 
you know, you'll get like a weird amount of joy out of listening to the lids pop, you know, when, when they seal <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. It's great. <laughs> it's really fun. I like that, dude. I'm excited to try it because there's, uh, there's a couple of things that I've been wanting to do. And that's really one of them that I think, I think I know my, myself enough that I would get really into it. You know what I yeah. mean? Like there's a couple of those things where I'm like, I need to be careful on how I commit to doing new things because I know myself enough to know if like, if I start something like this, I'm going to be consumed by it to a, to a large degree. So it's like, it's fun, but I'm, I'm looking forward to trying that. I wanted to see, uh, I, I was really curious in the salt carrying thing. Cause I think that would be something I would, I would really like too. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation because I'm learning just as much from this as I was cool. hoping to, yeah. which was great. That's awesome. Yeah, man. When you uh, when you're out, so you do all kinds of uh, all kinds of guides as far as different different animals and stuff. Do you have? I, I think you're you referenced yourself, like you said. I'm not just the elk guy. Is that kind of what you get? You know, recognized or thought of as the most? Is that kind of your jam? Man, I'm I'm far enough on the spectrum that I don't really know how pe- other people perceive me, uh, but I think that. I think that a lot of people do do think of me from an elk perspective, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love I love elk. I love elk hunting. They're too heavy, man. They're like elk are too heavy. Uh, <laughs> I last year I I made it through a career one hundred thousand pounds of elk. Um, oh that, my gosh. <laughs> and nuts, you know dude. after after archery season this year, you know we we'd gone through all these bulls and stuff. And, uh, and then I, I hosted this hunting school on the six ranch, which was an absolute blast. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was this goofy concept I had of like doing the opposite of what every other guy did, which was, I wanted, uh, I wanted these dudes to never need a guide again. Like mm. every other guy's just trying to get repeat clients. And I'm like, Oh, well, let's try the opposite of that. So I taught them a camping course, uh, helped them with like tag research and all that stuff on the front end, taught them a camping course. Um, a shooting course, scouting. We went and did the hunt, and then we did the the field dressing um, mm-hmm. after their hunt, and then we did all the meat processing the next day. So they got an A to Z, like this is how you go conduct a backcountry hunt uh, amazing, in a week, dude. and then went home. Um, so I'm going to do more of that. That was a lot of fun. The guys that came out and did it were awesome, uh, and it, it's that it's that clientele that that is there to learn. Uh, so that was really cool, but we also went from like, you know, 600 to 800 pound bull elk to like this hundred and you know, 60 pound whitetail. <laughs> yeah. We're able to just like pick up like, and put oh, in the truck. This is nice. <laughs> yeah. And I can just reach out and grab like both hindquarters in one hand and move them over to my <laughs> yeah. cutting board. Like, I like this. Like we need smaller elk. Um, <laughs> oh, that's funny. dude. And then, uh, no. you, I mean, do you get, so do you get any, uh, where you are, I think a lot of times do Roosevelt come this far East where you are, or are they closer? They stay more on the coast. So I'm, I'm going to make some people upset right now. I don't think Roosevelt's are real. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a little bit of razzle dazzle marketing. Not, uh, not what I was expecting. <laughs> So you know what Boone and Crockett does? This is good. So Boone and Crockett will only recognize it as a Roosevelt if it's killed west of I-5. 
The interstate is what separates it. <laughs> so if it's in the Willamette Valley, which the yeah. interstate goes through the middle of, right. and they're on the east side of the valley, oh, now you're Rocky Mountain Elk. If it crosses over no the interstate, way now it's you're Roosevelt. And Seriously? furthermore, and furthermore, uh, we sent trainloads of elk from Wallowa County that were a hybrid of the elk that we originally had and elk mm -hmm. that were brought here from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We sent trainloads of them over to Astoria to restore mm -hmm. their elk population because they'd been shot so much. Dude, I, I want to see like a genetic analysis that shows me that there is a difference between Rosies and Rockies. And I don't think there is one. Now, there's some physiological differences that get expressed because they're in different climates. Sure. Right? But uh, I, I'm just not confident that there's a difference. But um, crazy, if, if you're to look at Pope and Young, if you're to look uh -huh. at Boone and Crockett or SCI, uh, I-5 is the dividing line. That's so wild. <laughs> <laughs> like in the span of just a couple of seconds, one could be classified as one or the other if it decides to cross the road. <laughs> I kind of feel this way about coos deer too. If you go to Arizona yeah. and, and pull out yep. the regulations, it doesn't say coos deer. It says whitetail deer. Whitetail, yeah. And I was asking uh, Jay Scott about this because he's like the coos guy. And I was like, mm -hmm. where did the Texas whitetail like start becoming coos deer? You know, that West Texas country looks really like coos deer country to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said at the New Mexico state line. So if they're in, <laughs> if they're in New Mexico, they're a coos deer. If, if they're in Texas, they're a whitetail. <laughs> oh, my gosh, dude. That's hilarious. I, uh, I don't even know. I'm trying to think of, like, there, there wouldn't be any other... Like, there's, there's no other way that you'd be able to make a distinction. Like, and so we just had to create an arbitrary line. And it's like, you live on this side, you're one. You live on the other, you're the other. That's uh -huh. too funny, man. <laughs> uh, dude, I was going to mention to you, too. We got a few minutes here left. Uh, but you, you do a lot of these, um, like, these kind of news story posts and stuff going over things. And uh, I commented on one, but you had one uh, a few weeks ago that was just hilarious because there was uh, a shark that was found washed up on the bank of a river in Idaho. Yeah. Right. And uh, and you had the you know the theory that somebody like it was a prank basically like it was already dead somebody brought it here so it would wash up, whatever. And and I commented on the thing, but I had to tell a story because it's hilarious. And we were like. I was like maybe 10. My younger sister was eight. We had a couple friends with us. We used to go camp at Anderson Reservoir, just south of, you know, Pine area, Featherville. Mm -hmm. And there's hot springs between Pine and Featherville on the river under this bridge. And we used to go there like every night. And one night we're down there and uh, this like older couple, like sitting in the tubs, you know, with us in the river, we're just chatting, having a good time. It's dark and they're telling stories and stuff. And this lady starts going on this story for I mean I'm not kidding, dude. She told us this story for 40 minutes, like all backed it up with like all these things about this freshwater shark that had been spotted in the reservoir. So like, and we're eight, ten, eleven years old, and so nice. like we're just eating it up, like, and then we're all terrified to like go and play in the water the next day, right? And like I remember it so vividly because of how we felt tell when she was telling us the story. And then at the the final end, it's like the is like the longest setup to a joke ever 
because then she ends it when she's like, ah, I'm just kidding, or something like that. After like 45 minutes of just like us, I mean, hook, line, and sinker on this story. And then you posted that thing, and I was just like having these, like this flashback, this rushing memory. I'm like, it did exist. <laughs> like, it is here. This <laughs> is too funny, man. Yeah, no, that's that's hilarious. You know, we're really susceptible to to all kinds of like myths about uh, mm-hmm. about what lives in the water. You know, even more so, I think, than what lives in in space or in the sky. Mm-hmm. And if you start getting into different cultures around the world, you'll see that, like, yeah, they've they've got sky people, right? They've got some of that, but all of them have myths about what lives in the water and some of our most prevailing myths uh, that we talk about around the world are the things that live in the water so our our psyche is really like open and available to stuff like that which i think is part of what make made that such a great prank um you know salmon sharks are are a really fascinating animal and i think the most fun thing about this was that i got to spend a little bit of time learning about salmon sharks before I made that stupid post. But uh, yeah, the, the fact that they can keep their brain at a specific temperature as a cold-blooded animal is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're cousin to the great white, and they've got a really scary set of teeth. Uh, I think, and this is kind of going full circle to what we started about, started talking about with, uh, with the salmon and, and steelhead mm-hmm. stuff, you know, there's research that indicates that around 50% of Pacific salmon are, are killed by salmon sharks. Uh, that's massive. You yeah. know, our our fish run used to be uh, between 10 and 20 million salmon coming up the Columbia River, which would have come up all the way to Boise. Yeah. Uh, that's That's really remarkable. So part of the problem with doing habitat restoration for spawning areas is I can, I can create that field of dreams and I can create this place where salmon and steelhead can spawn and be happy. But if they can't survive the ocean, then none of it matters. And there's an increasing number of hostilities that are in the ocean. A lot of which um, comes with a change in temperature Mm -hmm. that just makes it really poor survivability for those fish and uh, salmon sharks are definitely a part of that. Uh, now, how much of that is hard to know. We don't even know where our steelhead go. We've had Snake River Basin steelhead that have been caught in Japan, that have been caught in uh, Chile. Like, we, we don't know where they go. That's uh, so crazy, man. It's so crazy. So it's really hard to say what's killing them in the ocean, but we do know how many fish go out, and we know how many fish come back, and yeah. a lot of them are dying out there. And the ocean is is critical habitat, but we can't list it as critical habitat, uh, largely because people are just kind of palms up about what they can do about it, you know? Yeah. Like it's the ocean. What are you going to do? (laughs) Yeah. But I know we're short on time. What do you want to close it out with? Dude, I think we should close it by you plugging all your links and, uh, telling about the podcast. Cause your, you have, your podcast is awesome also. And, uh, so yeah, talk about that and what you guys do on that show, because yeah, it's, it's a really great one to listen to. Well, I appreciate that recommendation. Uh, if you type in six ranch, you're going to find six ranch podcast, the cattle ranch, you're going to find six ranch outfitters, all that stuff. But what I would really rather see people do is to take this podcast, this episode, and just send it to one of your buddies 
and be like, hey, man, you might be interested in this. And if a third of you guys that are listening do that, then this show will, will grow and you're getting it for free. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, it's good, solid entertainment. You pay a lot for entertainment. Um, Ross is out here working hard to, to bring you these episodes. <laughs> so just show him some love and, and, um, just send it to a buddy and you know, it costs you nothing and it, it helps him a lot. You're the man, dude. Thanks again for, for hopping on today. I had a blast talking to you. We'll have to do another one of these at some point. Cause I'm sure we could go for a long well, time covering You're only stuff. three and a half hours away. So next time just jump Seriously, over here. Yeah. That's a good idea. We'll see if we can hook up and do one in person, man. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Sounds great. Awesome. Well, James, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.